Our scripture reading today is John chapter 9, verses 1 to 26. If you're following along in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 895. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. This is the word of God. Amen. Thanks, Jody. Well, uh, my, my mother-in-law, oh, it's a bad beginning to a story for a lot of people. Uh, I promise this is a good one. Uh, my mother-in-law has this story that um, it, it floors us whenever she tells it. Um, years and years ago, uh, she held a, a massive yard sale, and by all family accounts, it was extremely successful. They, uh, they were able to find a new home for a lot of the stuff that was piling up in their house, but uh, a day or so after the sale ended, she got a call from a family friend who had recently visited them, and uh, he said, Helen... I've misplaced one of my dishes, and I just now remembered where I left it. I left it at your house. 
Have you seen it? It's a green serving dish. And when she heard these words, she knew right away that she had very well seen this dish. And that made her a little bit queasy. Because this particular friend happened to deal in high-dollar antiques. And this particular dish was worth, according to her friend, $5,000. And a particular woman had just purchased this dish at the yard sale the day before. So what had happened was my mother-in-law saw this dish in her house, but it was next to all the other old dishes that she was putting into the yard sale. She didn't really recognize it. She just thought it was some old dish. And uh, it was put into the yard sale, and it was sold for a whopping 25 cents. Um, that's not good return on the investment, in case, in case you're wondering. Uh, but the end of that story is actually a happy one. The neighborhood was alerted. The, uh, the woman came forward uh, who had bought the dish. She gave it back. No harm, no foul. It was returned to its owner. Um, but the thing that I want to point out in this story is that there was this type of blindness involved in this mix-up. Uh, my mother-in-law was looking right at this dish the whole time as she prepared for the yard sale. Her eyes worked just fine. They were wide open. And yet she could not see the dish's incredible value. To her best guess, it was worth a quarter, right? Meanwhile, it's worth $5,000. So she could have stared at it all day long, but not really seen it. You know what I mean? She was seeing, but she was blind at the same time. And that's the sort of issue that you encounter in the Gospel of John in chapter 9 today. This human condition of somehow seeing, but not really seeing. Except the thing that humans can't see, the thing that we're blind to even though our eyes are wide open, this, this thing of incredible, infinite value is God and His kingdom. And what's worse, we don't even know that we're blind. We're just born into this blindness and we persist in it apart from a special work of God. And so then we create our own kingdoms. We create our own gods. And we miss the one true God and we miss His coming kingdom. And so here's where we're going with John today. Uh, first, we want to consider the, the symptoms of blindness that we see in some of the characters in this story. And, and we want to be asking the question as we look at them, how can we know if we're blind like they are? And then secondly, we'll look in the text to see how Jesus gives sight to the blind, how he does it. And the big idea that, that we'll hopefully come away with today is this. Only those who admit they are blind and look to Christ for sight will see God. Only those who admit that they are blind and look to Christ for sight will see God. So let's, let's jump into the text here. It begins with, with Jesus and his disciples uh, taking notice of this man as they walk by him. And we, we actually don't know a lot about this guy. Uh, we know that he was blind. We know that his blindness was from birth, so he's always had this disability. And then we also know that this disability has led him, according to his neighbors in verses 8 and 9, if you look, uh, to a life of begging. He, he was a, a fixture on the local sidewalk scene, so to speak, right? Which shouldn't be too hard to envision 
Uh, our city has plenty of folks in, in similar dire straits. Um, and so you can envision this man sitting there and calling out, begging for food or money or some kind of help as Jesus and his disciples pass by him. And as they look at this beggar, the disciples get a little inquisitive. They, they have a question for Jesus. And with this question, what the, the Gospel of John is doing is he starts to trace the development of two kinds of characters throughout the rest of the story. That's what he's doing. He's tracing the development of two kinds of characters. On the one side, you have the man who knew he was blind. And on the other side, you have the people who think they can see. The man who knew he was blind and the people who think they can see. And we'll consider both of these character types today, but the first part of the sermon here, I want to look at the, the symptoms or the, the evidence of the blindness in these people who think they can see. And the first evidence that you see that these people are blind, these seeing people, is that they're blind to God's designs for physical hardship and disability. They're blind to his designs for physical hardship. Notice what they ask in verse 1. They say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And hopefully, you catch the assumption there in their question. Their, their question was not, Rabbi, why is this man blind? Their question is, who sinned? this man or his parents, which is very revealing about the way that they understand his disability. It, for them, it must be a result of sin, and not sin in general either, like the sin of Adam and Eve that's corrupted all of us, physically, spiritually. They're talking about specific sin, individual sin. This man or his parents must have done something bad enough that God felt that blindness was the only proportionate punishment. And this was a, a common assumption in that day. They're not the only ones. You see the, uh, the Pharisees think in, uh, in verse 34 when they tell the man, you were born in utter sin. It's just, it's assumed by the passers-by of this man's life that he's in this spot because he deserves punishment. In their mind, there's no other reason or use, no other purpose, no other dimension to his blindness besides punishment. Now, how do we know that that's actually evidence of blindness? You know because of how Jesus responds. Verse 2, right? It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So these early disciples, they think they see exactly what's going on with this man. But Jesus says, in effect, you don't see anything. You do not see how my Father's kingdom works. It was not that this man sinned or his parents. There are other dimensions to understanding this man's hardship. God's plan for his blindness was actually to display his power in the man as Jesus restored his sight. And so Jesus has this vision for this man that the disciples just did not have. They, 
They could not see what Jesus was seeing. Now secondly, and and also wrapped up in this assumption of theirs, is also their blindness to how God relates to us. How he relates to us. And here's what I mean by that. If, If their only explanation for hardship is punishment for sin, then that means that they see relationship with God as strictly transactional. Strictly transactional. That is, God always repays us in exact proportion to the right or the wrong things we do. Just tit for tat. Do something wrong, God removes a blessing, brings calamity. Do something right, God gives a blessing. This man is blind, ergo God must be punishing him. That's how God relates to us, according to these early disciples here. The problem with that is that it's entirely inconsistent with the story of Israel as told by their very own scriptures. I mean, the history of Israel is one of God blessing a people who did not deserve it. And their leaders knew this. Like King David, he knew this very well. Lying, cheating, murdering David. He writes things like this in Psalm 103. He does not deal with us according to our sin, nor repay us according to our iniquities. How could he, right? They'd all be dead. We'd all be dead. He doesn't deal with us according to our iniquities. That's not to say that God sweeps sin under the rug. He doesn't. He's dealt with it fully and finally. It's not to say that God can't use hardship or pain as correction or punishment of some sort, but it does tell you that hardship or disability like this man's blindness does not have to be punishment for specific sin. God's character, um, his plan of redemption, they're more complex than that. He is a complex being with complex plans. He describes himself as patient, gracious. He says he has mercy on whomever he has mercy. He makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust. But they don't see him that way. They're blind to the way that he relates to us. Here's another thing that these seeing people can't see. They can't see God's designs for the Sabbath. If you look with me in verse 13. It says, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Now, if you're not uh, familiar with the Sabbath, uh, it, it finds its roots all the way back in, in creation. So the book of Genesis tells us that God rested, he Sabbathed, uh, on the seventh day of the creation story. So he, he looked over his creative work, he saw that it was good, and he took a break from his labors. And then later, when he rescues his people from Egyptian slavery, he calls them to remember his Sabbath rest on a weekly basis. They were to take a break from their labors and recognize God's sustenance, his provision. And so the Sabbath was this God-instituted thing. It was a big deal. So the problem for the Pharisees here is not their desire to honor the Sabbath. They should, they should have been doing that. 
The problem is that they had turned the Sabbath into something it was never meant to be. Over time, more and more and more rules had been added onto God's law as to what it meant to rest from your labor. And slowly the Sabbath transformed into this monstrosity that prevented people from exerting themselves in almost any fashion. So much so that even acts of mercy toward other human beings done on the Sabbath were stigmatized as unlawful. And so they can see a man miraculously healed, and their first thought is not, what a remarkable display of power. Like, who is this healer? Their response is, you just broke our Sabbath tradition. They cannot see that God's prohibitions against labor on the Sabbath were meant for human flourishing, not to restrict acts of mercy toward your neighbor. They're blind to God's intentions for the Sabbath. And because of that, there's another blindness you see here. Because of that, they can't see Jesus' righteousness. See, after already interrogating this man once about how he received his sight, the Pharisees say this, starting in verse 24. It says, So for the second time they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man's a sinner. We know it. This is, this is an astonishing statement. No one's brought to light any sort of moral defects in Jesus. No character defects in Jesus. They definitely disagree with him, but as far as like private and public morality goes, he's faultless. It's actually one of the things that frustrate his detractors. They, they can't really seem to pin anything on Jesus. What's more, everything he's saying, everything he's been teaching is supported by the scriptures that these religious leaders claim to love so much. Even this, this miracle performed, healing of the blind, sight for the blind, this is associated with the activities of God and his Messiah in the Old Testament. Kevin actually read some of these, uh, these verses in the, uh, the liturgy this morning already. So you have statements like uh, this one in Isaiah 29. It says, in that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. And Isaiah 35, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He'll come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. Sight for the blind was a foretold outpouring of blessing that they should have been waiting for, waiting for signs like this. But they observe the person of Jesus and his character and these works, and their conclusion is what? We know this man's a sinner. We know it. You can only explain that as blindness, right? I mean, there is something preventing them from seeing the image of the invisible God in the very visible person of Jesus. And then lastly, as, as this formerly blind man challenges these Pharisees, we also see that 
They're blind to their pride. Or maybe it's their pride that blinds them. Either way, right? Start with me in, in verse 30, where this guy gets a little sassy with the Pharisees. It says, the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? I mean, he's just answering their questions. He wasn't proactively proselytizing on Jesus' behalf. He was summoned by them. He's just recounting what actually happened. Like, that man spit in the dirt, made mud, rubbed it on my eyes, now I see. He's just telling them what happened. Some of what he's saying, they even already agree with. He says, God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to those who desire his will. And so you would think they'd at least agree on those points, but because of their pride, all they can muster is, would you teach us? Would you, sinner, teach us? Would you, beggar, you religious nobody, teach us religious somebodies? How dare you? And they cast him out. All, all of these evidences of blindness in this story, they're working together to show the reader that it's not the blind man who cannot see. It's not the blind man who can't see. It's the people who think they can see that are blind. And if we're honest with ourselves, the dots between them and us, they're really, really easy to connect. I mean, think about how the kingdom of God works in your mind. Like, how do you see God and his kingdom? How do you think it works? How do you see God's designs for weakness in the least of these? Are there people that you quietly assume do not qualify to have the works of God displayed in them? Because they're getting what they deserve. Maybe because they're limited in ways that you're not. I mean, do you assume when you run across people like this that you know God's sovereign plan for them in all of its dimensions, his plans for their hardship, his plans for their weakness? Don't think of how you would verbally answer that question either. Think about how you answer that question with the way that you treat those people. That's a more honest indicator. What about this? Do you equate seeing God with having tightly held religious practices and routines? Do you equate those things? And if so, do you offer those religious practices and routines to God in place of acts of mercy? Do you offer them in place of acts of mercy? Or maybe you've got a personal routine, a personal religion, that you hold so tightly to that you ignore clear opportunities for mercy. Uh, the other evening, this was about a week ago, Beth and I came home, and as soon as I walked in the door, Beth and told me that our 17-year-old neighbor needed a ride to his job. His job is five minutes round trip 
It is right down the street. Really easy act of mercy, right? And I did it. But not before rolling my eyes. Not before reluctantly grabbing my keys. Right? Doesn't this guy know I've got an evening wind-down routine? He's just interrupting my evening religion with his need for mercy. That's blindness. Do you think God operates transactionally with you? When you experience good, is it because you've done something to earn it? And if you experience the hard things of life, the despairing things, is it because God is angry with you? For instance, can you or someone you know lose a job and it not be seen as an indicator automatically of failure? God and his plans are more complex than that. It's blindness if we, if we don't acknowledge that. Are there certain types of people who can't tell you or teach you anything because you're better than them? You'd probably never say it, right? But is it true? I know a man whose marriage uh, was in a rough patch, and it was receiving the words of a non-Christian divorced man that turned things around. He said, you have no idea how good you have it. Do not throw it away. And he didn't. He listened to him. I mean, would you have received a word like that from someone like that? Or would you have been like the Pharisees, right? Who, who are you to teach me? I'm still married. You're not. I mean, in the kingdom of God, there has to be space for your supposed wisdom to be shamed by what you thought was someone else's foolishness there's no room for that, that's blindness. And if we persist in this blindness, unrepentant, not only will this blindness keep us from knowing and enjoying our Creator in this age, it's going to result in our eternal ruin. The blindness that will, this will keep us from both the current joys of God's upside-down kingdom and the future joys of his kingdom when it comes in its fullness and everything's put right where the weak are strong and the lame walk again and the blind see. We won't get to experience that if we persist in this. See, this blindness, is, it's not just a disability for us. It's death. So what do we do? Thankfully, this account of Jesus' miracle is not just about the horrors of blindness. It's about his desire and his ability to heal those who can admit that they're blind and look to him for sight. Again, he does this for those who can admit that they are blind and look to him for sight. And so we'll spend the rest of our time here together looking at how Jesus does this for the man who was born blind. So the first thing we see is that Jesus takes ordinary, lowly, earthly things and uses them to open our eyes to God and his kingdom. He uses ordinary, 
lowly, earthly things. Now, you might think it a small thing, but notice the, the crude items that Jesus employs to give the man his sight. Spit. First of all, let's just acknowledge that's pretty yucky. Right? We didn't even like it when our moms would spit on their thumbs and like wipe chocolate off your face or whatever else was on your face. I had a lot of things on my face when I was little. Um, but I think we too quickly overlook things like this. Spit, mud, and water. I mean, Jesus uses earthly, lowly things all the time in the working of his miracles, doesn't he? Old stone wedding or own stone jars, water jars at the wedding at Cana. He uses the, the contents of someone's lunch pail to feed thousands. And here he's spitting in the dirt, making mud, rubbing out a man's eyes, and then tells him to wash off with water. I mean, these are ordinary things, but stories like this litter the scriptures. They're all over it. You can't get around them. Now, there's significant symbolism behind some of these things. For instance, it's, it's not a mistake that John points out that Siloam, the pool of water where he washes, it's not a mistake that John mentions it means scent. Right? In the Gospel of John, you can count somewhere around like 42 times, I think is what I counted, where Jesus refers to himself as the one sent by the Father. That's how he sees himself. That's how the Gospel of John sees the person of Christ. He is the sent one. So you have Jesus, the sent one, and he sent this blind man to the pool of scent to wash so that he could see. So the idea being, if you want to see God in his kingdom, you need to be washed by the water of the scent. Significant symbolism. But do not lose sight of the fact that it is just water. It's just water. It's Jesus' spit. It's dirt from a forgotten road in Israel. These are ordinary, lowly, even grimy things. And yet Jesus employs them to work the miracle of giving sight. And you don't see the man object in disgust either. Like, how dare you wipe mud on my face? I've washed in Siloam a hundred times. It's just a pool of water. I'm not doing that again. He allows Jesus to use these things to help him see. So what does this mean for us? I think it means we should be careful not to miss seeing God because we don't approve of the lowly things he uses to help us see. We should be careful not to miss seeing God because we don't approve of the lowly things he uses to help us see. Here's an example of what I mean. Um, our culture, of which we are all part, right? We don't get to talk about it as though it is a, uh, something in the abstract. We're a part of our culture. We increasingly value speed and efficiency. We like microwaves. We like instant downloads. We like next day delivery, quick promotions at work. We do not want to wait on anything. That is something that we value. And so what I think we do, we, we take that value 
And then we superimpose it onto God and His kingdom. And so then, even things like gospel ministry become about getting things done for Jesus. But what if God is not concerned with the arbitrary timelines that you set up? I mean, after his resurrection, Jesus walked, he walked seven miles to Emmaus with two of his disciples. And they didn't even know it was him until the end of the journey. Like, that is not an efficient way to do ministry. That is not an efficient way to spread the good news. But he's got his own plan. He's on his own schedule. And he's going to accomplish it how he wants to. So, what if some of the lowly things that God uses to open your eyes to him and his kingdom are things that slow you down? What if that's the mud he wants to smear on your eyes? Things that slow you down. People who can't move or think or act as quickly and as well as you do. So you've got to stop and learn to be present with them and see what God might be quietly doing there, right? Your best laid plans crater and fall apart. So you're left on pause asking God what you want. Like, what's the next thing? Physical, mental, emotional, spiritual suffering push you into weakness so that you can have a genuine experience of walking with the Lord in dependence. If those slow things are just in your way, you'll miss God and His kingdom. Listen, we're earthly people. We are not disembodied spirits. Do not be surprised when Jesus uses earthly, humble things in conjunction with His powerful Word to remove your blinders and help you see. Secondly, He takes those lowly things and He does a work that only He can do. He takes those things and He does a work only He can do. From beginning to end in this story, the gift of sight is a work of God. The blindness that this man had known since he was a baby, it was not just going away. He'd been sitting there calling out for his whole life, and nothing was changing until Jesus walked by. The, the one thing this man was missing was not a secret concoction of spit and mud and water. It was the person and the power of Jesus. He needed God's intervention in the person of Christ. And the reason that's important is because you only start to see God in his kingdom. You only start to see it when boasting is removed. You only start to see it when boasting is removed. I mean, the kingdoms of this world, they are built upon power grabs. Self-righteousness, self-importance, self-exaltation. But one of the things 
that God is removing as he reconciles all things to himself in Jesus? One of the things he's removing is our ability to boast in anything except for him. Just him. Humility in God's kingdom, it's like, it's like oxygen. That's, that's the air you have to breathe in the vicinity of God. Humility. All boasting is removed. The only citizens in God's kingdom are people that have a testimony that sound an awful lot like this, right? I was a blind beggar. I was a blind beggar. No hope. Jesus decided, for whatever reason, by his grace, to display his works in me. Now my eyes are opened and I can see him. He's wonderful. He's wonderful in my eyes. That's all you can say. So, if you're a tender spirit this morning, who's worried that maybe you're beyond help because the scales over your eyes, they've been in place for a long time. Maybe they're just too thick, right? You need to know that you're not called to remove your own blindness. That's not the call here. It's a work of God, and He is able to remove a lifetime of blindness in an instant. He's done it for so many people in this room. You've got to know that. On the other hand, if you think you see God in His kingdom because you're just more clever than most, you know more facts about God, got a cleaner record, you should be fearful. That's not a scare tactic. You should be fearful. You're probably blind. Seeing is a work of God. It's not your work. So God uses these ordinary things to perform a work only He can do. And then lastly, and we've, we've got to key in on this, He does this work so that we could trust in Him alone. He does it so that we can trust in Him alone. Read with me starting in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. See, Jesus wasn't content, was he? To just heal this man's physical disability. He wasn't content leaving him with a, a fuzzy understanding of who he was. He identifies himself to this man and he calls him to trust in him. Being able to see God and his kingdom, it does not result in, in an amorphous spirituality. We love ideas like that in our culture. Spiritual awareness, it's a pretty popular thing. But God doesn't allow you to see so that you can then go off and create your own God and your own kingdom. It's not how it works. He doesn't give you eyes to see so you can create your own religion, your, your own warm fuzzies about higher power and vague notions of faith. He gives you eyes to see Jesus and worship Him as your only good, as your portion as your life, as your refuge, as your love, as your acceptance, 
as your adoption, as your righteousness, as your understanding, your wisdom, all those things are found in Jesus alone. He's not just another philosophy that helps you kind of justify the things you would have valued or believed in or trusted in anyway. He is a person. He's a person. He's a person who opens your eyes to the wonders of himself. That's the Christian life, right? This never-ending, always-deepening, continually clarifying discovery of everything that Jesus is for you as he opens your eyes. He's the thing of incredible value to which your eyes need to be opened. So to wrap up, let's return to this story about the priceless dish. Um, There was nothing my mother-in-law could do about her inability to see the dish's value. She wouldn't have drawn her conclusion on her own that the dish was worth $5,000, right? In her view, as she looked at it, she was like, I don't know, 25 cents? You know what she needed? She needed her friend to call her. She needed someone outside of her to call her and tell her, there's a dish in your house and it's priceless. That's us, right? We're blind. We need God to call us to himself, to do a work in us that only he can do so that we can see him and his kingdom. And if we understand ourselves as blind beggars who need God to display his works in us, we can hear that call. We can humbly Submit to Jesus as he concocts whatever mixture of earthly things that he wants to smear on our eyes and help us see. We can wash in the water of the sent one. And we can finally open our eyes to see God and his kingdom, to see Jesus and everything that he is for us. Don't waste your life assuming that you can see Only those who admit they are blind and look to Christ for sight will see God. You pray with me for a minute. Father, I'm so grateful for your word. So grateful we don't have to guess um, as to what you're like, who you are, what your message is to us. I pray we'd all be grateful for that this morning. Um, Will you give us eyes to see? We're blind apart from you. What are we going to do if you don't intervene? Lord, we don't want to persist in our blindness. I pray that uh, we'd all be noticing different ways that we're blind. I pray that we would all be anxious to come to you and look to Christ for sight. 
And I pray that um, in this church there would be a steady testimony of our eyes increasingly opening to your glory more and more. I pray that there would be a testimony to uh, the people that are in our spheres of influence getting their eyes opened because they've heard a message of the gospel and of hope from people who were formerly blind. These are works only you can do. We pray that you would do them. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.